Welcome to Composer Talk. I'm your host, Matthew Wong. As a film and TV composer, I love talking to others about their backgrounds, composition techniques, music tech, and more. We all watch films, TV, and digital media, and know the important role that scoring plays in storytelling. I want to invite you to join me on this adventure to learn more about the artists who are behind the scenes creating the music. If you want to learn more about the people interviewed on this podcast, make sure to follow us on our socials. And if you enjoy Composer Talk, please take the time to rate and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred listening site is. He is the music man behind Nightman Cometh, as well as the MD for live performances of the music of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. This composer has a love for musical theater, and his works in the field have been performed in New York and L.A. at venues including 55 Bar and Upright Citizens Brigade. He has also contributed music to FBE's incredibly viral videos for Teens React, YouTubers React, Elders React, and more. And the composer is Cormac Bluestone. Cormac, how are you today? Um, well, it's a pleasure. Um, th- thank you for that intro. <laughs> so, uh, like me, you're from New York, but you grew up, in, is it upstate New York? Uh, you know, if you're not from the tri-state area, you would call it upstate, um, but we're an hour outside of the city. I grew up in kind of northern Westchester, uh, Pound Ridge, New York, which used to be kind of the boonies of New York, uh, of Westchester. People thought it was way too far to live, and now it's a really popular place. Uh, I grew up out there, um, moved to the city in kind of the late 90s. I lived in L.A. for five, eight years, and uh, now I'm back there living in Brooklyn. So I guess uh, growing up in New York, did you have a musical family? Yeah. Uh, well, no. Um, <laughs> my parents weren't very musical, but they encouraged music and they both really loved music. Um, I have a younger brother and he played music as well. So we grew up around music. Uh, my parents, we go and see Broadway shows. My dad, he worked uh, in fixed income. So he was constantly entertaining clients and taking them to Broadway shows and games. And he came home one night and said, you know, to my mom, oh, we've got to go and see this Lay Miz show. I just saw it. It's incredible. Um, so I saw Lay Miz in its first year. I, I got to see a lot of premieres. I was really lucky how much musical theater I was exposed to. Um, and then the rest is just rebelling against musical theater, Van Halen and Metallica and all that. It's so funny. I mean, I remember the first album I actively wanted to play in the car with my parents was uh, the Mamma Mia soundtrack. Really? Okay. <laughs> and it's funny how like music, I mean, especially when it's ABBA and musical theater, there's just such a great sense of hook writing, I guess, with all this stuff. Oh my God. I mean, ABBA just, they wrote hook after hook. Everything sounds like a number one. And when I started writing music, I just kind of couldn't help but think, um, cause I grew up in the decade of, you know, cassettes when you'd buy the album. And I just thought, why don't more people write music like ABBA, where everything's a hit? Why is it like a hit surrounded by all this garbage um, off the wall? Like, why doesn't people? Why isn't every album Michael Jackson's Bad or Thriller? Um, so uh, you know, which you know, kind of makes me like try to write pop music and a number one every time I write. Uh, whether I succeed is <laughs> up to the public. Yeah. Well, it's funny that, you, I mean, we have similar tastes in the eighties rock bands too, but I remember just checking out this Max Martin interview recently where he talked about how he tried to bring the guitar riff sensibility of the eighties and rock music 
in with these pop hooks, I guess, from the Swedish background. And I wonder if some of that rubbed off on like both of us too, where we just like love rock music and there's just something so infectious about those riffs. Oh, I, yeah. I mean, Eddie Van Halen was, you know, my God still is. I am proud to admit it. Um, but now that I'm older and I really think about that music and listen hard, I'm just like, this guy wrote riff after riff after riff and not straight ahead, you know, 4-4. I mean, these things had groove, they had swing, uh, they were blues-based, and they were so catchy. And more than anything, they were so much fun. They're still so much fun. Their last album they released five, six years ago, um, A Different Kind of Truth, is just full. It's kind of hard to believe guys in their 60s still rock so hard. You know, the Stones, I loved, I remember Steel Wheels, and I saw the Steel Wheels tour, and I love that album. It is such a great album, but it feels like a bunch of old guys, you know, the accordion, they're singing mixed emotions, they're all kind of blathering into the microphone, and A Different Kind of Truth is so tight. It is so tightly recorded, and he still shreds, Alex still hits the drums, so hard and the <laughs> I, I love Michael Anthony, but Wolfgang, his bass lines are so cool and full and he's playing chords and blah 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 blah. Off topic probably, but that stuff totally rubs off you on you as a composer. So did you play guitar before getting into those bands or was it you listened to I don't know what the first song you remember hearing with the electric distorted guitar riff and then you're like, hey, I want to play guitar now. Oh, I unfortunately remember. I mean, we'd all been exposed to it, was but it I poison? remember the first album, Poison. Yeah. Cecil DeVille, man. That's really uh, funny. Uh, the first album I think I bought was Open Up and Say Ah. Um, Don't Need Nothing But a Good Time. It was a great solo. And uh, it's so funny you said Poison as a joke because it is that album, Bobby Dow. That was the same for me, I think, too. <laughs> oh, that album. It's a really fun album. Al- it's a dirty album. But I heard that, and yeah, that was kind of what started putting me on the path. I started as a piano player, and um, my brother switched to guitar way before I did, and I just got super jealous listening to him shred, and so I picked up the guitar, and I started listening to guitar players, though. Um, Steve Vai, Joe Satriani, guys who wrote, you know, wordless contemporary music, and I think that was kind of a big thing for me in getting into scoring for picture because I spent so much time listening to music that didn't have lyrics that was trying to tell a story and a narrative without words. And did you start writing, I don't know, guitar instrumentals soon after, or had you already even tried writing musical bits or was that, I guess at this time you're kind of straying away from that? Uh, you know, it was kind of, I, I, I've kind of feel lucky. I've always been able, I've always tried to do everything. So you know, for my thesis in the ninth grade, I wrote a musical. Um, but I also had a bunch of instrumental tracks. I, you know, rock tracks I did. I grew up, you know, using Performer. I had my own studio, uh, Roland U220 and Elisa's D4. Uh, I had a Tascam TSR8 reel to reel. So I was writing a lot of instrumental stuff, some lyrics. Uh, I'd write some music. I really didn't find my voice till later. Now, Everything I score, I sing on. You might not hear it in the mix, but I'm in there. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I never quite wrote as hard as I would have liked. When I did, it just didn't quite work. You know, I, I, I think a lot of trying to do that was trying to find my own voice. 
And uh, I found something a little in between. But yeah, I, I wanted to play that stuff. I played in a lot of hard rock bands in New York for years. Um, Arlene's Grocery, best backline in the city. So I played a lot of those venues and Mercury Lounge and with a couple hard rock bands or a pop rock band. And right now I kind of play on and off with like as what could be described as a civil war band where we're kind of all acoustic. Um, yeah, I'm rambling now. No, it's all good. Did you ever tour back then? Uh, no, I, I, I've played in bands that have played around a lot. And when I lived in LA, I played in kind of a hard rock band and we, we played around LA. We'd go North of LA. We'd play some festivals kind of, you know, an hour or two North of LA but the only real touring I've done was was the Nightman Cometh. Uh, Nightman, we did a uh, how many cities? We did six city tour of Nightman Cometh, um, and that was Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Seattle, um, San Francisco, Los Angeles. That's kind of the one real tour I've done, which was amazing and super fun. And I was a musical director, and I played in the band. I insisted the band be on stage, which was an easy sell because we just didn't have a lot of rehearsal. So we wanted to be able to see the cast and the cast wanted to be able to see us. So that was kind of my one big tour experience. Must have had a lot of fun stories from the bus. <laughs> yeah, I, I can only say, yeah. You know what? We <laughs> It wasn't super crazy. I, I've known that I, I kind of knew the cast already. Charlie Day is an old friend of mine. No one was particularly misbehaving. Um, we were just having fun. No rum ham? No rum ham. <laughs> well, I think Nightman predated rum ham. It wasn't a thing. So uh, it definitely was an influence on rum ham. Um, no, it was super fun. Um, yeah, I, I can't, I can barely even remember some of the stuff because I wanted to party, but I also had the 10 a.m. call for load in. So I'd always have to be at this load in. I like to eat. I want it to be ready. I want it to be professional. And then you do the eight o'clock show. And then we had to pack up and get to the next city. And then you'd party with the cast. <laughs> so it was kind of always trying to balance. And I remember I also emceed the tour. Danny and the cast pulled me in that before our first show. And they said, we want you to emcee. We were thinking of having Artemis do it. But we kind of want to save the cast for the show. And I had moved to New York originally to do stand-up. I, I love doing stand-up. I said, sure. And Danny looks at me. He's like, aren't you more excited about this? I'm like, I am. But if I do it tonight, I want to do it every night. And Danny says, well, then don't fuck it up. Um, which I, I, I mean, he talked about one of the great guys to get to work with. He was I just love getting to work with them. It's a great group of people. That's why the show's been had longevity and they've toured together. They hang out together. They're wonderful people. I think you've mentioned before that you met Charlie in your early 20s. Was that at school? Uh, we met at a theater festival, uh, the Williamstown Theater Festival in 97. And we just became really good friends that summer. We both returned the following summer. And we both moved to New York around the same time he did before I did. So when I started looking for an apartment, I slept on his floor. When I got an apartment, he got rid of his apartment and slept on my floor. And then I said, get out. That's his jokey version of the story. But we've been really tight friends um, since those early days. But at Williamstown, I, I do have to say, we also met Jimmy Simpson, who's still one of our really good friends. We met David Hornsby, who plays cricket on the show, Nate Mooney. I mean, 
a lot of the people that work on Sunny have been friends of Charlie or Rob or Glenn. So it really does have a family dynamic on the show. In terms of collaborators for the music side of your own projects, do you feel like a lot of people you work with are people you met in your formative years too? Only recently have I started feeling like, oh, I'm starting to work with those people I knew 20 years ago. Sonny is just a really good example. I had been producing these musical one acts at 55 Bar for years with some friends of mine. And when I moved to L.A., I said, let's do the show. We're going to do the best of the best. We have eight years of material. And Charlie came to the show and he said, God, these musicals are great. They're so funny. We're about to do a musical episode and we should hire you. I always like to say that side of it. He's been a good friend of mine, but you kind of also got to prove yourself and not just in my friendship, but in any friendship. You want to work with the people who are making things. Now that a lot of my friends are maybe have shifted from acting into producing or they're taking on more producerial things and we're not all just actors or composers competing for jobs. Now I'm just starting to feel like, oh, there's one person I've done three projects with her recently because she's producing now. And it's been awesome to reconnect with her because I I don't think I'd seen her for five or eight or 10 years. So just recently, to answer your question, I'm starting to work with some of those people that I met in my more formative years early on. I guess it takes time for everyone to kind of find their footing too and get to a point where you can help each other out. Yeah. In the first 10 years, I think everyone's just throwing elbows. Get out of my way. Get out of my way. You know, trying to get to where they want to be. And you went to Skidmore College. What was that environment like? Did you go in trying with this like mindset of trying to just become better as a musician or a composer or just to have fun? What a loaded question. How dare you? (laughs) Um, I was at Skidmore for two years. I love Skidmore. It was probably not the right place for me at that time in my life. I was a double major in theater because I still still like to act if people let me do it, Um, and music. But their academic requirements at Skidmore are also very rigorous, foreign language, and I just always have struggled with foreign languages. And the music program was very academic. And the things I would have loved to focus on were hard to. So the music theory was very history-based, as it should be, you know. And then our electronic music class, I remember, you know, one one of our first assignments, create a multi-track piece in the studio. I was like, well, okay, this (laughs) I've been doing this for 15 years. So it was kind of a push and pull. I definitely felt outmatched. I just wasn't sure I had the drive. Uh, Skidmore's jazz program is incredible. And I had gotten in, I think, partly because of a jazz demo I'd done. I did a recording of like Blue Bossa, uh, multi-track. I played all the instruments, but I wasn't a jazz guy. I like jazz. I enjoy playing jazz. And I remember my first day playing with my quartet and I walk in and I pull out, you know, an Ibanez heavy metal guitar to play, you know, (laughs) Mood Indigo or whatever. So it just wasn't quite the right program for me. And I don't think I'd really, I I hadn't really landed on scoring for picture at that point. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I, I wanted to play music. I wanted to write music. I wanted to arrange music, but I didn't want to, the academics were kind of weighing me down. It seems you almost fell into film scoring without having really studied it in school and it's just like all of your your skill sets kind of aligned into one thing. It's really weird because I mean that's exactly it. I 
I'd been working in theater a lot for years, writing music for theater, interstitial pieces for a lot of Shakespeare. I had a collaborator, did 10, 15 shows with a lot of Shakespeare. And I remember right from the beginning, I was like, we have to do this like a movie score. I cannot add time to the play. It's got to just cover the footsteps and the sound of the set moving, and it's got to be good. It's got to be enjoyable. I'm not trying to stretch the audience's ear. I'm trying to just hold their attention. That, I think, was kind of starting the foundation of how I learned to score. When I moved to L.A., I started just getting a little bit more serious about it. I just kept thinking, this is so easy. I know the technology. Why aren't more people making this an easier endeavor to do? Um, Because I think I was trying to work with a composer at the time, and I was like, this just feels way more complex than it should. Your listeners are probably hating this. I moved out with like for an acting program. I studied with David Mamet um, and we started a film company and I was just doing the music for that. And then I did Nightman Cometh. But Nightman Cometh was very much just a recording of a live musical. But then I started kind of seeking out more short films. And then for season five of Sunny, I got a call. Oh, I forget what it was, but it was a more score intensive thing for Sunny. And I just said, yeah, I can do that. And then finally, you know, season six, we're at the first Lethal Weapon episode. Oh, we need a full orchestral score, like my common. I was like, sure, yeah, I I can do that. And it was just a series. Sunny was weirdly a weird training ground because I had to do every season something dramatically different. Big score, musical, um, the claymation episode, working with the animators, So it was a lot of Sunny was kind of my training ground, which is a ridiculous thing to say. But I kept producing on time, on budget, quality material. It seems like you were just a great problem solver, too. You know, I feel like I I say it all the time. The professionals are the people who can figure it out. That that's what it is. You're constantly just figuring out these problems. That's all you can do. And people who don't want to solve the problems aren't the people who hang on to jobs. I hate to put it that way. Sounds a little blunt, but you know what I mean. Was there any moment where you felt like you learned how to identify problems other people had? Ooh, yeah. It was after I'd moved back to New York and a director I knew had sent, he said he was working with a really big composer. Would I watch his film and just give me some notes, you know, he he was like, I just feel like they don't get what this film is. And I remember watching the film and I was a fan of that composer. And I just remember thinking these problems are so clear. I, I don't know how this massive person in the industry has made such, as I can see it, pedestrian mistakes. And that was kind of a real big moment for me starting to realize It's one thing to write music to picture. It's another to really have a plan and figure out what you're trying to do. And that's when I really start to figure out what I was constantly trying to do, which is support the given circumstances of every scene you're doing. Not trying to make it funny, not trying to make it dramatic, merely supporting the given circumstances. And I remember watching that film thinking, oh, this composer hasn't done any of that. They're trying to make this dramatic. They're trying to make this funny. They're forcing the audience to feel something here. And that's when I felt I really kind of turned a corner. And it's funny. For me, I turned a corner not on a project, but watching someone else's film. You learn more from the mistakes than you do from the successes. That's an interesting challenge to figure out what the director wants. 
Yeah. And it's always a guessing game because directors, they have an idea of what they want and they have no idea what they want. And I'm sure you've had this experience as every composer has where you're talking to the director or the producers and they'll say at some point, listen, we know nothing about music. And you're thinking, you've heard music before though, right? You, you know more than you think. Tell me what you want and let me try and deliver that for you. Otherwise, I'm going to do whatever I want. Right. I wonder if people say that because they don't know the music theory or the the terminology of that aspect. Yeah. That's and, but it. that's not their job to know any more than I would say you need a 50 millimeter prime on that shot or whatever. I always say, be be rough, say whatever it is. If all you have in your mind is what color this music is supposed to sound like, just say it. Um, I won't make you feel silly for it. And I think another great thing from there is what other songs are that color? Because maybe purple doesn't mean anything to you. Oh my God. I'm like, send me- It could mean Prince. Yeah. Send me some specs. Who cares? Send me it. Um, you know, I, I love a temp track. I, I you know, I, I, I'm like a lot of composers. I hated them for a long time. Um, as long as I get that temp early, like no one's been sitting and watching it for three months. I love it. Um, especially a good temp. I worked on a series a couple of years ago. It had a great temp track and just every, moment of the show is like, how do I make it better than the temp? How can I beat that temp? Um, and that is exciting for me. And it, it gives me new vocabulary as a composer too. Um, I've gotten more vocabulary trying to beat or emulate temp tracks than just sitting in a studio trying to create something, you know, new out of my mind. It, it is collaboration. It's this thing is working, but we want you to do it better. Or we want you to to make it not a loop. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's so simple, and you've had this experience too. We love to talk about, oh, you know, the process and this and that. But a lot of time, it's we just need something that will cover this to this. We have this temp, but we really don't like that one snare hit in it. And you're like, okay, I'll change the key. I'll do it without the snare, and I might shift up the rhythm so I don't get sued. <laughs> And in terms of the process of scoring, because I assume you don't write with pen and paper uh, in terms of like knowing like the classical orchestration stuff, but sometimes really, I mean, listen, probably 90% of the time I'm a sequence guy, but uh, 10% sometimes it's just easier to write with not pen and paper. I use Sibelius, but uh, to do a notated score, especially if it's a brass part, I, I was on a show last year that there were a couple scenes throughout the season needed classical music. And I just found it easier to write classical music on notation and then just dump the MIDI in. Um, in fact, at one point when I got note performer, it sounds so good. I just use that um, because it's, it's just a sound bed. Ultimately, no one's scrutinizing, you know, what string part I used. It sounded great. Never has a composer ever gotten the note, can you change the string library? <laughs> but we're waiting for it. We're waiting. I mean, I when we had coffee a couple of months ago, it made me, it, I still have been thinking, you're like, you know, and then there are those mixers. And I know these mixers who know your library. They know the library the second you're there. So you're always sweating it. 
you know, you're, I, I find myself detuning instruments sometimes just to kind of keep everyone on edge a little bit. So my chords don't ring so hard or so they do ring hard. But to your question, sorry, I cut you off. Uh, yeah, I, I write sequence. My process is I, I start with picture right away. In fact, I usually start to, I beat map the session out. If I have a cue, I beat map the session out before I even write music for it. So, oh, this is going to be four beats. I want to kind of move into the next thing here, a little bit of a tempo shift. Then we're going to drift up, climax here, and then I'm going to retard out of the thing. And then the rest is just filling it in with music. I'm kind of that technical sometimes. Well, it's nice having the roadmap of exactly what you need to do. Yeah, why not? It's like scheduling your day. Why wouldn't you say exactly what you have to do in one day? Oh, yeah. I saw Mark Snow talking to um, a group of students recently at a ASCAP workshop, uh, and he did X-Files, he does Blue Bloods, and it was just so funny to hear him say everything that you know, you probably encounter every day and I encounter every day. He's like, you know, you get that episode. And if you don't get seven to 10 minutes done every day, you're screwed. But if you take a day off, you are screwed. You have to make that mixing date every time um, or they'll find someone who can. One of the best bits of advice I ever got was no one likes a late queue. When I'm on a project, I just keep my laptop on me the whole time. The last big series I did, I just wanted the cool kids on Fox. There were just two times that something didn't upload right. And I don't want them to have to wait four hours for me to go back to my studio or go back home. If something was wrong, they'd have it within 20 minutes. You just want to be that guy that comes through. Well, now that we're in the tech area, might as well bring up the last segment for this podcast, which is called Tech Talk, a segment where I list off a tech topic and you say as much or as little as you want about it. Oh, geez. I feel like you're going to school me. You know this stuff. This is so your realm. So the first one we got here is DAW. I mainly use Logic. I use Logic because I came up with Performer. I'm a MIDI sequencer more than a live recorder. So Pro Tools just... When I started using Performer, I just I was not going to choose Pro Tools purely because the MIDI sequencing was a lot better at Logic at the time. Now they're kind of the same. You can use same instrument libraries. I do use Pro Tools, especially when delivering to a mixing stage. Sometimes I like to use um, Audition, uh, which is part of the Adobe um, cloud software um, once in a while. Um, and once in a while, GarageBand is fun to use on the phone, but only after you showed me how to do that really cool sampler trick. Uh, next, we have uh, Brass. Uh, brass. What brass do I use? Yeah, well, I was actually interested because I think you said you got a trombone and a trumpet and just learned how to play, right? Yes. Oh, well, thank you um, for remembering that. Yeah, I, for a long time, I I just was so sick of the samples I was using. Um So I learned how to play trumpet and trombone. I'm not very good, but just keeping a live trumpet and trombone in the mix with the virtual ones livened up the mix. Um, As much as I love MIDI sequencing, I always like to keep keep some live instruments in there now. Um, but now I like to use the East West. I have the, I think the diamond collection. So I use that brass pack. I still use brass pack. 
Um, I use a sample modeling saxophones. I've used them for years. If you've seen either of the Lethal Weapon episodes, there are two Lethal Lethal Weapon episodes of Sonny um, for all the David Sanborn kind of Eric Clapton back and forth uh, emulating the Lethal Weapon soundtrack. That's all the sample mod um, saxophone packs. I think they're amazing and you can do a million things with them. I think their solo instruments are great. Sometimes it's hard to blend some of the larger things. Um, but that's kind of all my brass. And I also use the Aria collection sometimes. I used to use that. Sometimes I'll go back to that once in a while if um, for just some flexibility. But to be honest, East-West, I love using East-West. I've maxed out. I build all my articulations in, um, you know, Logic has that great articulations builder. When I say it's great, it needs work, Apple. And uh, yeah, there are just a million things you can do with it. And of course, now when I open a session, I have to open it and give it 20 minutes to load all the instruments and articulations. But Jeez. How many tracks do you have in your, your typical template? Uh, oh, you know, it's interesting because you were show- talking about a composer template the other day. I always start with an empty template. I rarely, I, I, I don't use a template. I usually build from scratch every single time. But the sessions... I'm working on a feature film right now. And when I work, I like to work the entire film in a single session. Unless there's another thing that's a little different, I usually do an entire film in a single session. So the whole thing is unity. And usually they'll grow to, you know, 100, 120 tracks. So, I mean, if it's one film in a giant session, let alone like the CPU stuff, like what if you want like the downbeat of this one cue to start at exactly like, minute seven how do you get that to line up uh oh i'm so glad you asked no one ever asked me this um i am a tempo monster you just move the tempo marks till it lands so when a cue ends for example season uh the season finale of sunny in philadelphia this year uh i did the score for that and it kind of had a dark orchestral score it's the first time that I can think of where we just didn't use the sunny music and i actually for the first time scored an episode um, but those cues are just me between each cue, kind of re- a couple measures after cue, I'll put in a tempo mark. Four beat, four measures later, I'll put in another tempo mark. And then once I get to the beginning of the next cue, if I want it to land at minute seven, I put my uh, cursor there and then just drift that tempo mark of um, that first tempo notch I put in until that lands on the frame I want. And I do a lot of that. So between every single cue in a movie, this movie I just did probably has 30 cues, but some of the cues are like five to eight minutes long, but it's all just tempo mapping. It's just a huge tempo map. Um, and it sounds complex. I don't even think about it anymore. It just, I, I love working that way. And Logic Now gave us, uh, I, I don't even know how to describe it. You used to have to like, have nodes for all your tempo drifts. If you put a retard or an accelerando in, it would have these nodes. Now they've done it vector-based. So you can do it like the automation. Um, and I've just spent years working that way. So that's how I do it. Gotcha. Well, the last uh, thing we have here on Tech Talk is conforms, which I think lands nicely with this topic. It, it It's the perfect thing. I, I have no fear of the conforms. Bring them on. So you have like, 
a cue, like the first cue is working, the third cue is working, and all of a sudden they they want the second cue to be cut in half. How does that work though with all your these crazy tempo markings? Uh, Sometimes that's where it gets a little tricky. And obviously, we're talking about when. and this speaks a little bit. I've gotten to do some big TV, but not big films. If you're on a big film, normally it will be broken into reels. Um, you're not going to be working on the entire project. The films I've done have all just been sent to me that way. So if that cue gets cut in half, then it's really, it depends on the situation. I try and avoid using Logic's cut frames thing. So what I'll do is I'll make the adjustment in that cue. I'll have made a note where that third cue begins, what frame. Literally, I'll simply lock a region with a note about what frame it's supposed to be on. And then I do the most massive tempo drift you've ever seen. I will crank that thing. If they are 20 measures apart, I'll use 18 measures and drift it to 1,000 BPMs to bring that in nice and tight. And it sounds like a lot of work. But for me, being able to continue to use the same template ultimately will save time to not have to realign compressors for the same instruments. And this goes back to my theater days. I always wanted my scores to sound like it was the same orchestra playing every cue. And it saves a lot of time not having to reload a session to do that, especially because I've gotten good at drifting those tempos. So I know it sounds completely insane. And if a big chunk of the movie disappears, then you can go in, you cut those measures, you dump in the new footage um, and you conform to that. But ultimately, I, I'm I'm totally comfortable just bouncing that tempo around. Why not? That's the way logic works. And Pro Tools is the same. If measure 57, you want it to be at frame 2 minute 33, frame 22, just tempo drift that back. That's how I like to do conforms. For other stuff, once you're in Pro Tools, if, you know, I, I did that, The Cool Kids was a straight up sitcom. When I'd reconform, I'd do that right in Pro Tools. No pitch drifting. You're just reconforming the picture to make life easier on the soundstage. So those are kind of the two ways I do it. Well, you killed it here with Tech Talk. Uh, Do you want to let the people know what you've got going on now? Oh, you know, we're in quarantine. Um, Our industry is dead for the next foreseeable months. I'm working on a feature called Hell Wanted, which I'm really excited about, doing kind of a John Carpenter synthy score that I'm, I, it's just so much fun to get to do that and open a session that has no samples in it. So it's just opens right up. Um, and a bunch of short films that are going to be premiering if we have film festivals again that I'm really excited about. Um, and you can see all that stuff at my website, Cormac Bluestone, C O R M A C B L U E S T O N E dot com. Great. Well, thank you so much for being on, Cormac. It's a pleasure having you. I was so flattered to be asked, man. Uh, thank you for asking me. This has been such a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Composer Talk. If you like what we're doing, feel free to follow us on Instagram or Facebook. The show is mixed and sounds great thanks to the incredible Eric Bard, who's also a talented composer, producer, and mixer. Until next time, this has been Matthew Wong.